Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I give my commentary and thoughts and ideas on American writers, reading them 100 pages per episode, using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be continuing and completing our look at The Conjure Man Dies by Rudolf Fischer, which is part of the larger series on the Harlem Renaissance writers. Um, so in this episode, I want to spend a little less time talking about the end of the mystery. I, I set it up in the previous episode to give the context, to give them the main plot. But I don't I, I only want to provide broad brushes at this point. I, I don't want I'm not sure what the the etiquette is on spoiling mystery novels. Um, and I'm not sure you'll want to get all the detail talking through of the mystery. Um, it's really a nice device. And I, I really encourage people to read this novel because it's a lot of fun and it's, it's rather rich. Instead, in this episode, I just want to kind of conclude this, this story relatively briefly, talking about some of the themes of the novel and where we can place this novel alongside the other Harlem Renaissance works. Um, I will say that Rudolf Fischer, the author of the novel, um, was a physician. He was a radiologist and a bacteriologist. And when he comes to the resolution of this novel that has supernatural overtones, it's, it's after all about a, a voodoo priest in Harlem, the solution he comes to is perfectly acceptable within natural law. It has to do with body switching. And while there are supernatural elements in the motivations of the characters, none of these appear to be manifest in real existence. So we end up with a perfectly naturalistic answer. Despite all the voodoo under the surface, there does not appear to be any actual supernatural elements needed for this mystery to work. So in this way, perhaps the novel works as a criticism of African-American spirituality and superstition, especially the kind of superstition that would have given people like Frimbo power over the lower classes of Harlem. All right, but first I want to talk about the, a bit of the setting in the novel. The novel is set during... The time it was written, it, it, right? It's set in the 19th, early 1930s. The novel was published in 1932. So it's set during the Great Depression. Um, as most students of American history know, the Great Depression was particularly hard on black Americans. Uh, for one reason was the, the, the overall tradition of blacks being the last to be hired and the first to be fired. The first to be fired when times got bad, the last to be hired in a recovery. And for this reason, unemployment was higher for black Americans than white Americans in, in the industrial sector and in cities. Um, one thing I just, look, I just looked it up uh, suggested 50% of blacks were unemployed in comparison to about 25% for the overall economy. Right? Now, of course, in some towns, like in Detroit, unemployment for all workers was close to 50%, but across the economy as a whole, about 25% unemployment in the depths of the Great Depression. But for blacks, that may have been as high as 50%. And then uh, even when the New Deal came into effect, its policies, if were not discriminatory overtly against blacks, tended to have negative consequences, or at least sometimes had negative consequences. Administrations might, or agencies might, tend to prefer white workers. Um, I don't know the details about the WPA in this regard. The classic example of this is the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which encouraged farmers to take land out of cultivation. But the subsidies for this went to landowners, tended to be white in the South, 
black farmers in the South tended to be tenants and sharecroppers. And so they were often pushed off the land so landowners could get subsidies from the government. So all of this meant that black people just had a harder time um, in, in the Depression. Unions, many of them were still quite racist in their hiring or didn't want to stick their neck out on race issues. Some more radical unions did, did stand up for black workers, but that wasn't necessarily true across, across the board. So all of that is painting a picture of just a worse economic situation for, for black Americans in Harlem or, or anywhere else. So I think that's important to be in the backdrop. A lot of our characters are marginally employed. Some of them are going to business for themselves, like Bubber is becoming a private detective. We have many people in debt. We have people seeking the advice of this conjure man for, you know, the day-to-day -day needs of survival. So there is this, this, this rich description of the economic context. And I think this is one thing that makes... The, the novels of the 30s, especially this one and the one we'll look at in the next episodes, Black Thunder, more militant and a little bit more radical and a little more grumpy than some of the novels earlier in the Harlem Renaissance from the 20s, which focus a lot more on identity and, and maybe racial politics, but economics didn't come into them nearly as overtly. Even in works like Home to Harlem, aren't politically radical, I think, on labor issues so much. They, they're suggestive, perhaps, of, of some of the economic difficulties blacks are facing and, and, and the marginality of, of, of some of their working class life, especially in Home to Harlem, going from job to job, as those characters did. But I think they're a little bit more edgy and a little bit more cantankerous than the works, I mean, in, in the 30s, particularly Black Thunder, which is about a slave revolt. So there might be a, a more overt political turn. And I think The Conjurer Man Dies is really, really stressing the economic difficulties these characters are facing and facing police harassment, police violence, incarceration and all this stuff. Anyways, um, another thing to keep in mind when reading this novel is. Is, I guess, superstition, religion and. And power, I guess that's what I want to say. With the exception of a Frimbo who is revealed to be an African king living out his life in the United States as a conjurer and a scholar, and perhaps Dr. Archer, our character is all drawn from the Harlem working class. And this is true even of our detective, our police detective. Mostly there are people who are evading work to some degree. We are reminded of the work resistance in Omu, back in our, my series on Melville, or certainly the characters in Home to Harlem who are moving around from job to job, trying to evade work, in part trying to find a... So it was security and happiness for themselves, but that requires them moving around. This is the population of people who are under the gun of police repression on the one hand and in need of money on the other. They're often willing to scam if necessary. They're willing to turn to conjurement if it will help them secure their needs of, of their survival. They're willing to evade work or to get revenge. I think my favorite example of this from the novel is Bubbler Brown Incorporated, the creation of this company, the private detective agency. From this, Bubber not only gets some income, but he gets respect from the other Denzians of Harlem. So um, this is just going to be, I think, a, a big theme of the story. The fact that they turn to superstition uh, to get security shows that there's a level of repression underneath this 
these kind of full cultures. I guess that's what I want to say. With these full cultures, yeah, it's one thing we can celebrate and we can be fascinated by the, the interplay between the official kind of Christian religion. Um, and, and of course, Fisher himself came from a religious family and the superstitions, and it's kind of fun to watch. But, you know, Frimbo is a con artist when it comes down to it. He cold reads these people and, you know, he's not really doing magic. He, in fact, he uses the this magic as a way to try to evade his his suspicious actions, the way he treats the other people of Harlem, and the way he sets up the whole novel. I don't want to give away too much, but uh, he's a central figure uh, in the novel, uh, on both as a victim and, a, and, and as the criminal. Now, the character of Frimbo himself gives us a window into transatlantic connections, which I think is a growing theme in African-American history in the early 20th century. Uh, perhaps it begins with the Harlem Renaissance, um, the generation that comes out of slavery had virtually no connection to Africa, right? One um, percent or less than one percent of African Americans in 1960, 1861 were born in Africa, right? So this is a population that's virtually entirely African American, born in or born in America, speaking English, culturally Christian, right? This is what made that colonization movement, the effort to kind of sh uh, ship emancipated slaves back to back to Africa, was so silly, right? You, you're basically sending them to a foreign country. Um, it was, well, you have to be pretty racist to say that, you know, Africa is your homeland, even after generations of being separated from it. Now you have people like, I guess, Phyllis Wheatley, who write about Africa and other black writers who from time to time would write about Af Africa. You had missionaries in the antebellum period who sometimes went to Africa. You had the establishment of the colony of Liberia, which was this place for these manumitted slaves to go. And missionaries went there and there was this that movement. So there was transatlantic connections. Um, they become a bit deeper in the 20th century, I think. And African-Americans start to think more and more about Africa and Africa's place and their legacy and their historical um, relationship. Maybe this is due to the Caribbean migration. Maybe it's due to uh, more education and a growing awareness of, of Africa. Maybe it's the, due to the work of people like W.E.B. Du Bois who wrote on the slave trade um, and kind of wrote about the global situation of, of black people in the diaspora. And of course, I think Du Bois was at the, the Pan-African conferences after World War I, which were trying to talk about the, the colonial situation, right? You have the Wilsonian moment, which, you know, which affected people like Marcus Garvey, who are saying that, you know, self-determination isn't just for Europeans. It should be for all people, the black diaspora and colonized Africans. Um, now, I don't know about how much migration was going on. Now, Frimbo is a, is a migrant from Africa. Frimbo was actually an African king who turns his back on his kingdom to become a scholar and eventually a con artist in America. Now, the questions of how did Africans see America and African-Americans, and then how did African-Americans see Africa are both big questions, and I'm not going to get into them in much detail here. But both of them are cha change over time and are often based on deep misunderstandings about what their life was like. 
African-Americans may have been more likely to see Africa, for instance, as a singular unit not and not be aware of their culture diversity and, and you know. In this novel, we're actually given a five-page section on Frimbo's backstory in Africa. It contains many tidbits about life in the Niger Valley, where Frimbo's from. Now, again, how much of this is drawn from life, I cannot tell you. And it may just be these African fantasies of Africa. But it's hard to avoid a bit of a dualism here that's coming off from the pages and Fisher's account here. That is, Africa's magical, America's modern, scientific, and progressive. Frimbo, you know, he gets his magical side from his African roots. He comes to America and becomes a philosopher, and he gets a degree from Harvard. He becomes educated. He becomes modern in America, right? And it's because he's a migrant he's able to join these two things. Archer is fully American, fully scientific, fully rational, right? The working class less so. So um, the working class here is presented as very superstitious, very religious. At one point when Frimbo is actually accused of plotting this entire thing, he more or less relies on the argument that Africa is mysterious in his defense. So here's a passage. Tricks, Frimbo said softly, is an unkind word. The fact is, however, that I have killed no one. It is true that I have disposed of my servant's remains. If the box contains what you say it does, and if Brown was in the cellar when you say he was, he undoubtedly saw me in the course of performing what was nothing more or less than a tribal duty. Tribal duty? The servant was a fellow tribesman of mine, whom I took in and protected when his venture into this civilization proved to be less fortunate than mine. He was of my clan and entitled to use the name Frimbo. His distinguishing name, however, what you would call his Christian name, had not been he, he had not been a heathen or savage, was Nuugo. It was our tradition that the spirit of one of our number who meets death at the hands of an, an outsider can be purged of that disgrace and freed from its flesh only by fire. The body must be burned before sunset of the third day. Since the circumstances made this impossible, I assumed the risk of removing and pro properly disposing my tribesmen's flesh. For that and for whatever penalty attaches to it, I have no regret. Right, so this is how he tries to get out of his scheme at the end by falling on the language of, of kind of cultural difference. This is the African tradition where we have this kind of other things and you can't really understand it as modern Americans. Our doctor, Archer, standing in for Fisher himself, perhaps, is a strict scientist and he brings the newest methods of forensic medicine to bear in solving the crime. His greatest achievement is in completing the blood analysis that proves that the bodies were switched and that the dead body is not the living Frimbo, which cast doubt on his old claim that he was dead but have risen again from the dead. Archer is interested in Frimble's story, his philosophy and methods, and they engage in a long discussion of this. And there's a whole section of the novel where after Frimble reveals himself to be alive, Archer tries to get to know him and they, they, they talk for several pages about this. And the, the, really what the description, what the what they talk about is things like determinism. They talk about free will. They talk about magic. They talk about science. They talk about the difference between psychology and fortune telling. Frimbo more or less confesses that there is a degree of psychology in fortune telling, of kind of coming out saying that he is essentially cold reading these people. 
Here's something that Frimbo says to Archer. I mean that such a creature would be a god only to those bound by a deterministic order like ours. But you forget that ours is not, cannot be the only order in the universe. There must be others. Orders more complex perhaps than our simple cause and effect. Imagine, for instance, an order in which a cause followed its effect instead of preceding it. Someone has already brought forward evidence of such a possibility. A creature of such an order could act upon our order in ways that would be utterly inconceivable to us. So far as the system is concerned, he would have complete freedom of will, for he would be subject only to our order, his order, not our own. All right, so this is how Frimbo kind of gets into a space for, for opening up free will. Um, it seems that whether you come at it from scientifically or from the Christian point of view or from the mystical point of view embraced by, I guess, the, the superstitious Denzians of, of Harlem, you, you have the same debate, right? In the Christian order is like the free will versus determinism debate is pretty clear, right? If God's all powerful, if God knows all, what freedom do we have, right? And then others want to say, of course, God gives us free will. How else can we understand sin if not as a function of free will? If you're a scientist, you know, is, are we products of our DNA, of our heredity, of our upbringing? Are we products of simply of our society we live in? Are we products of just these physical laws? You know, how, how can we have free will in a deterministic universe, right? And then it's the same with these superstitions, right? On the one hand, if you go to a fortune teller, you must believe the future is laid out to some degree, right? But why else go to a fortune teller if not to try to avoid it or to get around it or to change it? So this is really another theme of the novel, the line between magic and science and the line between determinism and free will, um, well, I guess that about does it for The Conjurman Dies. I feel I'm leaving it a bit, cutting it a little bit short, but uh, I'm sorry for that. But, you know, I guess it's because I'm not going into the details of what happens in the second half of the novel. It's really fun. And I, I sort of, in what I quoted, gave away at least a little bit of what how it's resolved. I find it to be a fascinating mystery story. It's historically significant. It is truly the first mystery novel by an African-American from the U.S. at least. So that makes it important. Um, it's this richness in the examination of the working class life of Harlem, uh, the role of magic as a survival strategy, the growing awareness of Africa among African-Americans, and that's seen through the fascination of this character Frimbo, who is seen as bringing with him from Africa this magical, these magical talents. Finally, we get our first close depictions of a black scientist working in his full glory to attempt to solve a fascinating mystery. Now, to be fair, I think we had a few black scientists as marginal characters in some of the other Harlem Renaissance novels, but this is the first one that's really front and center as a scientist. So that's it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, please rate, subscribe, share it, uh, let other people know about it. Um, bear in mind, I'm, I'm right, keeping on my 100 pages pro um, project, but I'm also started a Philip K. Dick book club, which looks just in detail in the works of Philip K. Dick, story by story, chapter by chapter. So you might want to check that out on the same channel. In the next two episodes, we'll be shifting in time to, well, I guess to the 18th century. Uh, 1800 is still the 18th century. The place is Virginia. Instead of focusing on the African connection, we'll be considering the Caribbean connection. Yes, we'll wrap up our series on the Harlem Renaissance by not going to Harlem at all. We'll be visiting, along with Arna Bone Temps, uh, Gabriel's Revolt in his novel Black Thunder, a work of historical fiction considering one of the greatest slave revolts in early American history. So with that, I'll go. I'll see you in 100 pages. 
for Black Thunder.